We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon. And we are talking about the J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And today we're going to do chapter three. So how are you, Bob? How was Christmas? I'm good. <clears throat> yeah, I was going to bring up all those holiday things. Look at that. Boy, you know, for our family, Hampton, it, it's, it gets really crowded time-wise time because we have Kathy's. So we have, you know, the holiday season. You got um, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. And then in between those three, we have Kathy's birthday, Sophia's birthday and my birthday. Oh goodness. So we got like six things within six weeks. Yeah, that's a hard time to have a birthday. My middle son has a birthday today, January third. And so, you know, it gets lost <laughs> in all the Christmas stuff. It does. So anyway, we persevered through you hate to even say it that way. Oh, I got through it, you know. <laughs> But and then, you know, on top of all that, it's a very busy time for Kathy business wise, because there's still five or six people that we decorate <coughs> their home for for the holidays. Oh, really? So, you know, in between all that other stuff, you're putting up all these Christmas lights for everybody, all these garlands, all these decorations and then taking them down. So we're we're still in the midst of taking everything down. Yeah. So anyway. And it's uh it's snowing, but not not bad. How you doing down there? Oh it uh, rained last night, but it's like forty something. Aha. Uh -huh. <clears throat> I'll probably play golf after we're through here. Oh, well. In short. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to slow you down. <laughs> well, <clears throat> let's dive in, Hampton. Okay. This is a fun chapter. So we we finished um, Dempster on Dominion and Dynasty. I don't want people to lose the main message of that, the main message of the Tanakh. But then we switched, not switched, but moved on to uh, Packer. His book was just so popular. When was it? The early 80s? Maybe? I think he wrote it in 73. I don't okay. know when it became real popular, but. 70s and 80s as far mm -hmm. as um, 
encouraging people to know God. That's the title of the book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And the approach I've taken to it so far is it, this is not a book I would, you know, take off the shelf and read necessarily. It doesn't scratch where I'm itching, but it was so popular. So it must be scratching where a lot of people are itching. And the approach I've taken is what comes naturally to me thought-wise is the fact that all of us have a different relationship with God based on our individuality. Right. And so Packer seems to express where a lot of people really connected, but you know, I'm a little different than that. You might be a little different than that. So anyway, we're not picking on Packer. We're just using him as a springboard. So here's Packer chapter three of knowing God. This chapter is called knowing and being known. Would you put another title on this or would you, how would you summarize the content of this chapter? Well, I do think that, you know, he does spend quite a bit of time at the end talking about being known by God. And so I, I thought that was good. I, I don't know that I would change the title. Okay. What were you thinking? Well, it, he seemed to be touching on a particular subject to me, like the difference. You'll hear it in common parlance as like head knowledge versus relationship. And I've right. just, yeah. I've just never understood that distinction. But and I know he does his best to ferret that out. I know what he's saying. I just don't really appreciate that distinction. I don't think those things should be well, distinct. I, I think that you know, if you look at German scholarship of people who were not Christian, but they were Bible scholars. They knew a lot about God. Sure, but they didn't have a relationship with him. So there's plenty of those around. <laughs> I'd say, I'd rephrase that. I'd say they knew a lot about God's word. I don't think they knew a lot about God. Okay. But maybe that's the distinction he's actually drawn. Right. Yeah, they're great scholars. They're interesting to read. Um, they really understand the text, but yeah, I don't think they know the author, maybe. But let's start. So knowing and being known, J.I. Packer, um, Knowing God, and this is chapter three. How about these first two sentences? What are we made for to know God? Do you have any issues there? <laughs> Not that I'm looking for issues, but no. <laughs> okay, I do. And how, you know, again, we not were, in a way we're made to take dominion and yes, it's that's as clear as a bell in Genesis one and two what mankind was made for is to rule the world. That's the purpose of an image. And we're the image of God. Now, underneath that category, in order to do that, yeah, you need to know God because you're, you're his image. Mm -hmm. But the first purpose is dominion. So I'm just surprised, you know, when I read that, what were we made for? Instantly, my mind goes, well, yeah, dominion. And then he says to know God. And I'm like, mm, yes and no. I know what he's saying, but I don't think that's the best answer there. But what he goes on to say is fun to look at. So then he says, what is 
the eternal life that Jesus gives. Knowledge of God. So he quotes John 17, 3. That's one of my favorite verses. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's a, you know, that's a fun one to play with in that if you like had an overhead projector and or a computer screen and you said, you know, what is eternal life? And then wrote a blank. How would Christians in the Western culture fill in that blank? What do you think they'd say? I doubt if they'd say what. Jesus said in John 17. Yeah, I'd probably say something about going to heaven. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's not what he says. That That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways to think about that whole subject is <clears throat> back to the foundation. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. What happened in chapter 3 is God and man were separated. And so you know, knowing him now became an issue. Whereas before you did know him almost, almost instantaneously. Now there's a gap. Now there's a separation that separation is caused by sin. So eternal life is to bring those two back together, to remove the sin and to know God again, unhindered. So I don't I don't think many Christians in Western Christianity would present it that way, but that's how the Bible presents it. So then Packer goes on, what's the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. Knowledge of God. That's what the Lord says. So he's going to quote Jeremiah. Oh, this is a good one. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. That's a good one. Sure is. So the last part of that, that he understands and knows me. So when I read that, you know, instantly my mind focuses on the and the conjunction. So in that case is understanding and knowing, are they presented as the same thing? Like the and is explanatory, like concessive, I think is how that's listed in the grammatical books. Or is it, or is the and keeping those two things apart? Like they're both, you need to do both, but they're separate things. Yeah, I think that they're separate. So understanding and knowing separate things. Okay. So here's the next one. Hosea. What of all the states God ever sees man in gives God most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. Here's Hosea 6.6. I desired the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, says God. So it's it's as if their knowledge is almost a a practice. It's like the the reason you guys have to do your burnt offerings is because you're sinful. I'd rather you just knew me 
as in didn't sin, as in didn't have to do the sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he uh, finishes that little section with this question before the next section that's titled what knowing God involves. The last sentence of that first section is we pose the question then what sort of activity or event is it that can properly be described as knowing God? Yeah, I liked his description or questions in the, that paragraph where he says, what are we talking about when we use the phrase knowing God? A special sort of emotion shivers down the back, a dreamy off the ground floating feeling, tingling thrills and exhilaration such as drug takers seek. And, you know, so he has a lot of questions. I, you hear a voice, a vision, see a vision. Anyway. What's a, what's the dominant metaphor in the Bible for what he's asking? I'm, I'm not sure I'm exactly right on this, but I, I think I am. Isn't it the uh, verb to walk? Yeah. Yeah, to walk with that's him. a good one. That's that's what I would that's what I would substitute for knowing God. Walk with Him, because you're not going to walk with Him in silence, and you're going to be on His path. So it's not going to be a sinful path, right? You're going to walk a pure path with plenty of conversation. And I mean, what better picture of that do you have than the gospel accounts, right? Isn't that like what the word disciple? ultimately means follower right. so you just follow him on the path that's how i would describe it but <clears throat> so <clears throat> the next section what knowing god involves and I, you might have had was your illustration in this one like when you sit down with the president or something yeah i really he, he talks about um the quality well, i'll read a little bit here I hit the button, wrong button. Um, the quality and extent of our knowledge of other people depends more on them than on us. Our knowing them is more directly the result of their allowing us to know them than of our attempting to get to know them. Um, and then he talks about knowing someone who's above us. And he gives the example of the president of the United States or the queen of England. And so you know, how much we can know about them is totally up to them. Um, and if they just keep it the courteous formalities, then we don't really get to know them. But he says, but if instead he starts at once to take us into his confidence and tells us frankly what is in his mind on matters of common concern, and if he goes on to invite us to join him in particular undertakings he has planned and asks us to make ourselves permanently available for this kind of collaboration whenever he needs us, then we shall feel enormously privileged and it will make a world of difference to our general outlook. If life seemed unimportant and, a dreary, and dreary hitherto, it will not seem so anymore now that the great man has enrolled us among his personal assistants. Here is something to write home about and something to live up to. I, I just thought, I never really thought about, I mean, that's what God's doing. That's what Jesus did with the disciples. And he goes on to talk about that. 
and I just thought that was a good illustration because I hadn't really, you know, how much better is it that God's doing that than in the president, than the president of the United States would do it. Sure. You know, I've, some of the thoughts I had go rattling around in my brain when I was reading that section, it's kind of interesting. I think, you know, one, he made the point with people, they, you're dependent on them to reveal themselves to you because I don't do that naturally. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, obviously with some people a lot more than with others, but I think all of us are reticent to some extent until we talked about, you can know a horse and know how it's going to act and respond, you know, if it's skittish and whatever within a few days and, but horses don't keep secrets like people do people keep <laughs> <laughs> okay so taking that a step further you know i remember learning very young after i had come to faith a definition of sin like the the hebrew word hata right means uh miss the mark essentially <clears throat> and i remember uh being taught that you know at some length and so in in your walk, in your righteousness, you know, yeah, you, you miss the mark quite often. You don't, you fall short. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've, I've come to have a much fuller understanding of sin. (laughs) Unfortunately, some of that understanding was gained through experience, but um, I don't just define say that that's an okay definition of sin, but that doesn't exhaust the concept. And I think a big, um, element of the concept of sin is hiding. Like, for instance, back to, you know, our foundation, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's the very first thing Adam and Eve did after they sinned. Mm-hmm. They hid from God. So it wasn't the original sin of, like, rebellion, right, of disobedience, of not doing what he said, but it sure is a big consequence of sin that becomes sin in, in and of itself right you know hi, hiding and so in some ways that's what we're doing with people right when when we're reticent to share stuff with some of its wisdom though there's there's stuff you don't you know that shows wisdom that you don't reveal so that's it's not a cut and dried issue but hiding is a big big part of sin with god and Think of Jesus's response sometimes during the Gospels. There's a bit of, you don't want to say subterfuge, but there's a bit of reticence in what he says sometimes. Like, for instance, you know, who who do you say you are or something like that? And he'll say, uh, the son of man. That's not immediately revelatory. Right. That that's less than full blown. Here's who I am. Don't you think? Right. Right. Well, and, and so why would he be that way? Why would it, why is he doing that when they ask him that question? And my understanding of that is, well, they're, they're asking with a different motive. So they, they don't truly want to know who he is. They want to get Rome off their back. And if he's, a messiah a military guy that can lead them to victory over rome okay they're they're down with that but that's not his mission 
So he, he answers with some, he's answering them, but there's some ambiguity there um, on his part, because they're not 100% sincere in what they're asking him. And I wonder if that hinders a lot of people's relationship with God. You know, when they pray to be close to him or whatnot, he may be a little standoffish about that because they may not be asking that with the purest of motives. Right. And my suspicion is that's true quite often. You know, if if the records of the scripture are accurate, which they are, very few people really seek him with a pure heart. That's that's the vast minority. The name of the book, I think it was Wilkerson or something wrote it. It was about he prayed that God would enlarge his whatever, but and it and he you know had this huge ministry, and so he wrote a book about that. So anyway, I think there might have been pure motives with the the original request, but sure. then the book comes out and everybody's like praying it with the extra motives in there of maybe getting rich or (laughs) and so i mean is that how you know just just to converse about this how uh scary is it to you that god's omniscient um (laughs) (laughs) yeah well he makes a point in there in this chapter um did i highlight that can't find it but yeah he talks about god knows us you know through and through and he still wants to have a relationship with us and that's amazing he does he does but he's also you know that also enables him to he'll give you as much as you sincerely want in other words I think, and regardless of what our words um, conveying, you know, our thoughts, if we we say we want that, he knows whether we really do or not. Right, he knows our motives. Yeah, and he'll he'll respond accordingly. Um, just kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. I had some stuff highlighted on the next page. Well, before I read Packer, I'll give an illustration. You know, one way to illustrate the the sincerity on his part for the relationship is, along with his omniscience, you can't surprise him. You know, with some of our friends or acquaintances, sometimes they'll do something that you're just shocked or like, for instance, you know, we've done a podcast or two on suicide. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't this a common thing you hear on that subject that, well, I had no idea so-and-so was, right? They'll interview his family members, his friends, and they'll say, I had no idea he was struggling with that. Right. Well, well, God did. He, he wasn't shocked. He didn't wake up and read the newspaper and go, oh, I can't believe that happened today. I can't believe Bob did that today. He said he knew I did that before the world was formed. 
right? right. So you, you can't shock him with your behavior. He knows, he knows what you're going to do way before the world was even created. So he's not surprised. And he's still, in spite of that, you know, knowing the great things about you, knowing the worst things about you, he still desires the relationship. So Packer says, what happens is that the almighty creator, the Lord of hosts, the great God, before whom the nations are as a drop in a bucket, comes to you and begins to talk to you through the words and truths of Holy Scripture. Perhaps you've been acquainted with the Bible and Christian truths for many years, and it's meant little to you. But one day you wake up to the fact that God's actually speaking to you, you, through the biblical message. As you listen to what God is saying, you find yourself brought very low. For God talks to you about your sin and guilt and weakness and blindness and folly and compels you to judge yourself hopeless and helpless, to cry out for forgiveness. But that's not all. You come to realize as you listen that God's actually opening his heart to you, making friends with you and enlisting you as a colleague. Bart phrases that a covenant partner. It's a staggering thing, but it's true. The relationship in which sinful human beings know God is one in which God, so to speak, takes them onto his staff to be henceforth his fellow workers and personal friends. The action of God in taking Joseph from prison to become Pharaoh's prime minister is a picture of what he does to every Christian. From being Satan's prisoner, you find yourself transferred to a position of trust in the service of God. At once, life is transformed. Yeah, I had that paragraph highlighted too. That was very good. Yeah, very good. So then at the end of that section, the last paragraph. So what then does the activity of God, of knowing God involve? Holding together the various elements involved in this relationship, as we have sketched it out, we must say that knowing God involves first listening to God's word and receiving it as the Holy Spirit interprets it in application to oneself. Second, noting God's nature and character as his word and works reveal it. Third, accepting his invitations and doing what he commands. Fourth, recognizing and rejoicing in the love that he's shown in thus approaching you and drawing you into his divine fellowship. So that that's Packer's take on what knowing God is. Any comments there? No. What's the next thing? Knowing Jesus. Yeah. Did you have anything highlighted there? No, it, he was just, you know, giving several examples of that's what Jesus was doing with the disciples. You know, bringing them in, calling them friends, sending them out. So think, okay, so think of um, images in the Bible, because God often is referring back to some fundamental images, and Packer lists them. And they're pretty good. So the primary image of God that he lists, you know, the first one is a son 
knowing his father. Second image, a wife knowing her husband. So he, he often presents himself to Israel as Israel's husband. Right. The third, a subject knowing his king. And fourth, a sheep knowing its shepherd. So you'll come back in the scriptures to those images all the time. And by saying images, I, I don't mean to disqualify their reality. But right. those images are frequent in the scriptures. So Packer goes on to say, then the Bible adds the further point that we know God in this way only through knowing Jesus Christ, who is himself God, manifest in the flesh. So this is John 14. Don't you know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's important, therefore, that we should be clear in our minds as to what knowing Jesus Christ means. And then he has a paragraph that kind of answers that question, you know, or fills in that subject, what knowing Jesus Christ means. He mentions, this is interesting, so the second sentence of the next paragraph, the disciples were ordinary Galileans with no special claims on the interest of Jesus. But Jesus, the rabbi who spoke with authority, that, that interests me that uh, Packer put that in there, the authority reference. I think he's really correct to do so. The primary place you see that, and I mean, it's all throughout the Gospels, of course, but where it's center stage is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So it describes the reaction of the crowds after he spoke the Sermon on the Mount. And the main reaction was that they marveled at his authority. You know, if you think back to that sermon you know, you have heard that it was said, and he'll quote Moses. Right. And then say, but I say, and put himself over Moses. I mean, that, that must have just been earth-shaking yeah, for, so. for that, for that yeah, audience. Not what most rabbis did. They just you know, quoted each other. and Yeah, they just footnote everything. Yeah. And he, here he is trumping Moses. And for them, that's not possible. Right. For a human being to do that. You know, they know God could do that, but nobody outranks Moses as a prophet. Except what is it, Deuteronomy 18, 19, 19, 18? About the greater prophet than you. Yeah, he'll send a, a prophet. Well, he'll send a prophet like me. So Jesus is like a lawgiver, not just a foreseeing the future kind of guy but a lawgiver so that interested me <laughs> and that that theme's yeah, prominent that theme is prominent in matthew so the famous you know at the end of matthew the uh, great commission begins all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and what do you need to rule the earth authority you know, back to Packer's very first question. So, 
Then the next one that interested me in that paragraph, he refers to Matthew 16, 16. So I wonder when when uh, Packer sets down these references or, or when we have conversations and we toss out biblical references, quite often I've found it the case that, you know, the person I'm talking to, me half the time, doesn't really understand that reference, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know most of us don't because I'm not very good at that, but that one I sure know. Matthew 16, 16 is really important. That's when he turns to, you know, the disciples, pick Peter in particular. And, you know, who do you say that I am? Well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But what had happened first was Jesus says, you know, well, when when Peter answers that, Jesus says, okay, well, now I got to go to Jerusalem and die. And in Peter says, God, God forbid. And Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Right. So that that's the context of that passage. But the point is, you know, in that passage is so critical because he goes on to explain why he called Peter Satan. And he says, because you are setting your mind on the thoughts of man not god so in other words mankind apart from god is demonic that's really sobering yes we we don't have to say for instance hey bill gates is possessed you don't have to say that you just have to know Bill, Gart, Bill Gates is separate from yeah, God. We have a tendency to think of uh, most people are neutral. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and there is no neutral. Yeah, Bill Gates is not setting his, I feel 100% confident in saying this. He's not setting his mind on the thoughts of God. <laughs> right? Yeah. So you don't have to be possessed to be called Satan by Jesus Christ. You just have to put your mind on the thoughts of man. That's, I mean, you could think, you could ponder that forever almost, the significance of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then his next one that he refers to is really important too. So he quotes John 6.68, where uh, the disciples say, you have the words of eternal life. And I doubt if many people know what's, just off the top of their head, what's going on in John chapter six, that's the bread of life discourse. And that that's where Jesus says, you know, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. There are a bunch of people that literally says that. Yeah. Yeah. And like you've, you just said, uh, most of the crowd leaves at that point. They're just going that, you know, we can't comprehend that. And so he turns to the disciples and says, you know, do you want to leave also? They say, no, you have the words of eternal life. Where it's, else would we go? Yeah. And it's even more subtle than that because they say the first time when an instance like that comes up is John chapter two at the wedding in Cana. 
and it says, you know, in the text that the disciples believed him. And here in John 6, it says, we have believed and come to know that you have the words of eternal life. So there's progression in the disciples' faith. I'm just pointing out, you know, I'm just trying to encourage people. Um, when you see biblical references, I just my wish for you is that you knew the context of those. That you knew the scriptures to a point where you, you knew exactly what was going on in that passage. That'd be my desire for every every believer. And I've got a long ways to go in order to do that. But so then his next paragraph, Hampton. Now, when the New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is risen, one of the things it means is that the victim of Calvary is now, so to speak, loose and at large so that anyone anywhere can enjoy the same kind of relationship with him as the disciples had in the days of his flesh. That is a good implication that he draws out of the resurrection. I would say <clears throat> we did this on our core beliefs, but it's, not, it's probably not the central plank in any Christian's belief, but it's probably the second I'd say the first central plank is the Bible is God's word. But the second plank is Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I mean, that that's everything in the Christian faith. That's the deal breaker. Yeah. Right. So the significance of that historical act could hardly be, be ascertained. I mean, that you could ponder that forever. The fact that he rose from the dead, it also separates him doesn't it from any other religious leader? Right. <laughs> right. So you'll often hear, you know, Jesus lumped together with Mohammed and Confucius and what have you. No, Th those people are not on the same level. Well, you gave the illustration one time about if there was a meeting of all those people. Yeah. How did you? I don't remember exactly. Well, if you, you if you put them all in a room, let's say there's twelve of them, and you you put them in a room, and shut the door, and then open the door back up in sixty seconds, eleven of them are on their knees, and one of them is standing there. <laughs> right? <laughs> They're not equals. Yeah. Creatures not equal to the Creator. I mean, what a farce. So then. The next paragraph, <clears throat> the only differences are that, so first, like the difference between the disciples and us today, his presence with the Christian is spiritual, not bodily, and so invisible to our physical eyes. I So this is not a quibble with Packer at all. He's doing a good job. But <clears throat> I think we often use the two terms spiritual and physical he's he said spiritual and bodily but i think we often use those terms as as polar polar opposites right like on a continuum a thing that's spiritual is not physical and a thing that's physical is not so i don't i don't think that's right 
I'm not saying Packers wrong here. Packers fine. I'm just saying our understanding of spiritual needs some maturity. Okay. That's where I'm going to leave it at this point. <clears throat> Second, Christians building on the New Testament witness, the Christian knows from the start those truths about the deity and atoning sacrifice of Jesus, which the original disciples grasped only gradually over a period of years. That's true. That Wouldn't that be, you know, to put yourself back in the place of the disciples wouldn't that just be mind wouldn't every day be almost mind-blowing i can't i would think so and i mean you're I thinking that what the point of mark is that it took the disciples a long time to figure out who he was yeah and it, they were af afraid most of the time <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but man that would be mind-blowing you know, if we if we were on that boat when he calms the sea, we'd be like, yeah, cool, of course, he's God. He can do have that. You, have you seen, well, you don't watch TV. There's a TV series out called The Chosen. Yeah. Have yeah. you seen any of those episodes? I've seen maybe five minutes and turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, I've not, be, go ahead. You've, you've seen some of it, I imagine. I've, I've seen some, uh, several of them. It's very interesting. It's, I have to say it's like historical fiction. It's mm -hmm. the backstory of what might have happened that's not in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy about that. I think Lori was watching some video yesterday, and it was Bodie Bauckham and John MacArthur and several people, I think, were taking them to task. For <laughs> What were they? What were their comments? I, I think they would thought it was heretical or something. <laughs> well, I would. I wouldn't go so far as that. But what I, what I would say is, you know, even though I'm not a movie guy, Hampton, but I can imagine the role of a director of a movie being kind of like an exegete, right? Like here's the movie script. But what you're doing as the director is bringing out the significance of the script. So, for instance, to film something like, what was this? I literally did see, like, I mean, maybe five minutes of it. Was it uh, Jesus at the well, maybe, mm -hmm. with the Samaritan woman? You, you would have to know that chapter of John so well inside and out in order to bring that to film and i when i watched he didn't he it wasn't blasphemous to me but it it was not how i would have done that and yeah. that doesn't necessarily make it wrong but <laughs> how i would have done it would have been based on johannine exegesis not just trying to put something on film you got to interpret as a director right you you yeah. got to capture the smiles at the right time the frowns in such a way that you're portraying the essence of that text not just you're not just portraying the scene 
you got to portray the theological significance of that. And I, I would imagine, I, I don't know a person on earth who could do that really well for that whole story. Right. Well, and, and it, people, one of the dangers is that people don't know the Bible well enough to be able to know that this isn't what, this is not in the Bible, what we're watching. Right. They probably get confused. and think Yeah. That. And that's also why I've always had this pet peeve in the back of my mind. Not a, really a pet peeve, but a, an itch, so to speak, with movies in general. Because if you pose the thought this way, so if God truly wanted to communicate to mankind, would he do so through a book or a movie? Well, it's pretty clear he chose a book. And there's fantastic reasons why he did that. Movies are tremendously limiting. Oh, right, yeah. the, a, a yeah, camera. Yeah. What movie is as good as the book? Yeah, it's there. It's never as good. And why is that? That's almost a universal response to that that issue when a book is made into a movie. You know, a really good book, and then you go see it, and you're right. almost you, always a little disappointed. Characters are thinking. If the author tells you, it's hard to put that in a. It's a, it's movie. a camera. It's very hard for a camera to display inner life. Very hard. A camera is so limited. It's monocular. (laughs) (laughs) And your your eyes, you know, the window to your mind is unlimited. Why, Why would you prefer this grossly limited view to a subject like God as opposed to an unlimited view of him through through a book? So anyway, yeah, that's my So it wasn't just because the technology wasn't there. You would have done it in a book anyway. Right. And then, and then, oh, wait, once the technology, oh, now we have to wait for 3D. And then, you know, 50 years from now, there'll be new tech. Oh, we had to wait for, whereas the book, right off the bat, unsurpassed. So <clears throat> then he goes on in the next section to uh he calls it a personal matter and he's trying to distinguish what it really is to know god so he says first second um third right and he's going through what it is for a person to know god it's he did get close to saying what i would say with his second comment about knowing god it says second personal involvement Yes, and he says mind, will, and feeling. And that's where I would have gone first. So knowing God is done in your, what I would say, your inner person. And your inner person is comprised of your mind, as in intellect, your emotions, and your will. And they all have to be involved. Now, all of, that's what I mean by all of us are wired differently. You know, emotions make a fantastic motor to your life. They can power you through a lot of stuff, right? Like there's a lot of times where it'll be called upon me to intervene 
in some situation, and I'm really reluctant to do that unless I get mad enough, <laughs> right? <laughs> unless there's this big enough emotional factor, and then I'm jumping in. So emotions for me make a fantastic motor. They make a horrible steering wheel. <laughs> I mean, you do, yeah. you do not want to be driving down the road with your emotions. You are going to make a wrong turn. You're almost guaranteed. You're going to have a wreck. Yes. <laughs> You're gonna have a wreck. And then, <clears throat> then you also need a map, right? And that's your will. So you steer with your will and your emotions power you, your intellect. I don't know. what. How would you categorize that in that analogy? What part of a car? How you know where you're going? I suppose so. Yeah. So that's how I do it. But he did a fine job here. I think the whole point is that I would like to make. Packer doesn't make it the same way I would, but everybody's different. But you need to engage all three of those things. Some people are going to engage emotionally first. And the other stuff follows. Well, that's fine. Some people are going to engage with their will. And the other stuff follows. Some people are going to engage with their intellect. It's just all of them need to be there. Whichever one you lead with is, is fine. That's the way God wired you. Um, he did in his third point in that section, he did say, uh, knowing God is a matter of grace. And that's that's a good one to keep in mind. Um, I'll never forget <clears throat> how often do you hear these verses tossed out, like out of Isaiah, right? My ways are not your ways. And, and what people usually mean when they toss that out is, oh, something unexpected happened. <laughs> so... It must be from God. Really? <laughs> what kind of conclusion? Forgiveness? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here's what he's talking about is I forgive and you guys don't. Right. So, so his forgiveness should be a really big part of your relationship with him. <clears throat> so the final section, Hampton, anything there? Being known. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I have this third paragraph highlighted. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow humans do not see. And am I glad, he has in parentheses, and that he sees more corruption in me that than that which I see in myself. And, and he says, which in all conscience is enough. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. We cannot work these thoughts out here, but merely to mention them is enough to show how much it means to know, not merely that we know God, but that he knows us. Yeah, that's how he finished the chapter. That is how he finishes the chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. Um, two things I want to do to finish up this morning. One is um, 
go back to my, again, explaining my own spiritual walk. So I was just trained from day one in the scriptures. And I even like to use the word trained, you know, from a coaching and competitive background that just, for me, that made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, other people don't have to feel that way, but it, it did for me. So when I come across something, for instance, you know, that to me highly pertains this subject of knowing God and I'm thinking through the scriptures, that's always what goes through my mind first with a theological question is, what did the scriptures say about that? You know, what was the context? What was going on? And I think, you know, I loved Dempster so much because I had friends in school, you know, I majored in the New Testament um, for my second program, but I had friends that would throw Old Testament guys and they would say, well, why are you just studying the appendix? <laughs> I would just laugh. You know, I knew exactly what they meant. And after my formal education, I just went back, like we've talked about when we were in Dempster and, you know, rereading the Old Testament, just going, oh my gosh, all this stuff was in here. And to see it in its bedrock form is so good. So here's what I'm preparing us for. You've heard me discuss at least hint at a number of times a day of atonement mm-hmm. that that is the central portion of the Pentateuch Moses's books. And I just don't think, you know, if I even say that, I don't think many listeners have the full context of that in their mind and what's going on. But once a year, Israel was instructed to clean the whole camp you know, particularly the tabernacle. And so inside the tabernacles, the Holy of Holies, and then as you move out from there, there's gradations of holiness, but the whole camp of Israel was considered holy. And they had to clean that once a year. Not that um, they didn't during the year do sacrifices for cleansing, you know, and forgiveness of sin, But once a year, you got to scrub that thing down so that people don't have a sense of sin as pollution, but God does. And it was important that they cleanse that once a year. But once you did, then the reason for the cleansing was so that you could have this unhindered fellowship with God. You know, it's kind of like, imagine, here's a corny analogy but this used to happen to me all the time when I would play outside as a little boy you get filthy dirty right and then you come in and you take one step in that house and what's your mom say (laughs) I mean one step and it's take your shoes off take that shirt off you know don't bring that dirt in into the house right and and you'd have to get clean that's very similar to what's going on in Leviticus 16 with the day of atonement so that you can have an unhindered fellowship with God. Well, how does that pertain to knowing God? Well, a lot. You, let me tell you, he is not going to be that close to you while you're dirty. I mean, he'll save you from the dirt, right? But he, 
and it's not, you know, I'm just using dirt metaphorically. We have no idea how offensive sin is to him. Right. And, and do you know, Hampton, think of this. When, when I refer back to uh, Leviticus 16, I wonder how many of our listeners know what the Day of Atonement was built, what scene, what action it refers to as initiating the, the reason for this Day of Atonement. And it's because Nadab and Abihu were killed for offering, quote, strange fire. That sets the stage for the David. And I wonder how many people know that. And they need to know that. Because if, you, if you're living still as a believer with one foot, quote, in the world and one foot, you know, with God, you're not very close to him at all. Mm-hmm. He, he can't stand that. That's a really offensive to him. And all this language of, you know, oh, God's my friend. God's my he is right but let me tell you that just to say it that's very offensive to him to live that way you got to make a hundred percent decision you have to clean your temple completely to be close to him so anyway i just wanted to finish with that and then hampton you know what i forgot to do as we began i forgot to read romans 3 because I wanted to, yeah, I'll read it now because we wanted to read a chapter of Romans um, every time we did a section of knowing God. So we've gotten up to chapter three. Here's Romans chapter three. Therefore, what advantage does the Jew have? Or what's the value of circumcision? Actually, there are many advantages. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Absolutely not. Let God be proven true, and every human being shown up as a liar. Just as it is written, so that you will be justified in your words and will prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, What shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. Absolutely not. For otherwise, how could God judge the world? For if by my lie, the truth of God enhances his glory, why am I still actually being judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil so that good may come of it, as some who slander us allege that we say, their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we better off? Certainly not. For we've already charged that Jews and Greeks alike are all under sin. Just as it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together they've become worthless. There's no one who shows kindness, not even one. Their throats are in open graves. They deceive with their tongues. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths. (coughs) The way of peace 
they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no one is declared righteous before him by the works of the law. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, although it is attested by the law and the prophets, has been disclosed. Namely, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. For all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God but they're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat <laughs> accessible through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because God in his forbearance had passed over the sins previously committed. This was also to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time so that we would be just, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who lives because of Jesus's faithfulness. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what principle? Of works? No, but by the principle of faith. For we considered that a person is declared, we considered that a person is declared righteous by faith, apart from the works of the law? Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, the Gentiles too. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. Instead, we uphold the law. <clears throat> so I just want to leave with one thought about that, but maybe before I present that, do you have any comments on Romans three? That's, that's like one of maybe the most important chapters of all the Bible. Yes. Well, um, no one seeks God. What stood out after our conversation today. Yes. Didn't it sound like, mankind apart from god is satanic isn't that at the core of that chapter yeah yeah and one other thing stood out but uh net bible translates to verse 22 namely the righteousness of god through the faithfulness of jesus christ and then down in 26 and the justifier of the one who lives because of jesus's faithfulness Mm-hmm. All other translations have faith in. Yeah, those are genitives, right? That you got to. <laughs> so we, we've gone with the subjective genitive on that. Mm-hmm. And I think in Galatians 2.16. Yeah, it makes so, a lot of sense that way. How about one, one last observation? So back to the satanic thing. See, just see if this rings true to you. Is that chapter take on a new significance if you see it against the background of the demons accusing God of lying 
about Genesis 3, that he didn't kill Adam and he said he would? Maybe. Hadn't thought of it that way. Think about that. Think about every mouth being closed and God proved true and so on. It's yeah. it's interesting. Very good. So, okay, champ. I'm glad we're back at it. Sorry for the That's the okay. Break. Okay. It was the holiday, so it was good to take a break. There you go. Well, thanks. I'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect.